I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like this Um... <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. Hey, up, you pop crazy youngsters, and welcome to part two of episode 70 of Chart Music. I'm Al Needham. She's Sarah B. Ahoy. He's Neil Kulkarna. Indeed I am. And I didn't sleep very well last night, my dears, because I fear that I may have misled the pop craze youngsters when I compared the episode of Top of the Pops we're going to tuck into as, quote, an open-faced shit sandwich. <laughs> it was a tad harsh. Well, when you think about it, surely an open-faced shit sandwich is going to be worse, isn't it? Because you're not disguising the shit with an extra slice of bread. No. And there's a much greater shit-to-bread ratio. So, Neil, sandwich expert, help me out here. You're adjudicate. <laughs> well, would you rather eat a shit sandwich or an open-faced shit sandwich? <laughs> I was trying to say that this episode for 1986 isn't as bad as you'd think it was going to be. No, it isn't. But, I mean, truth be told, to choose between a shit sandwich and an open-faced shit sandwich, yeah... I mean, the bread's not going to help either way, but let no, I want to move on from that. That's just a grotesque image. Okay. I feel like this episode is more like uh, it appears to be an open-faced shit sandwich, and then when you actually brace yourself for a bite, it turns out to be delicious meat paste. Ooh. Shippums. Yes. <laughs> not shittens, not shippums. <laughs> All right, then, pop craze youngsters. It is time to go way back to April of 1986. Always remember... We may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget, they've been on top of the pops more than we have. Welcome to Top of the Pops, and here to start us off, Big Country, and look away... thrown towards a neon purple proscenium arch, which looks like a gazebo for a garden party in Tron, as the disembodied voice of Davis gets the party started with Look Away by Big Country. We covered Big Country in Chart Music 60 when they made their first appearance in the Top of the Pop studio to perform their first hit, Fields of Fire, in April of 1983, which helped it get to number 10. 
Since then, they've peeled off a run of six top 30 hits, peaking in January of 1984 when Wonderland got to number eight and their second LP, Steel Town, entering the album chart at number one in October of that year. However, by January of 1985, after the band had recorded the soundtrack to the Scottish comedy film Restless Natives and contributed to Do They Know It's Christmas by Band-Aid, Stuart Adamson burned out from four years of relentless touring, writing and recording, demanded a timeout, and spent much of the year running his pub in Dunfermline, even though he'd gone on the wagon the year before, while the rest of the band chipped in on Roger Daltrey's solo LP Under the Raging Moon and Pete Townsend's White City and Novel and drummer Mark Brzezicki went on loan to the cult to finish off the Love LP after the sack Nigel Preston and even appears on the video for She Sells Sanctuary despite not having played on its recording. By the end of the year, and with Adamson ready to jump back on the treadmill, Mercury, their label, decided it was time that the band were kicked up into the big league, alongside their counterparts U2 and Simple Minds. And to this end, they replaced their regular producer Steve Lillywhite with Robin Miller, who had worked with Sade and Fine Young Cannibals for their next LP although no one really liked the results, and he was replaced by Walter Turbitt, who had worked with The Cars and Malcolm McLaren. This is the lead cut from that album, The Seer, which will be coming out in July, and it's the follow-up to Just a Shadow, which got to number 26 in January of 1985. It entered the charts at number 18 last week and a screening of the video in last week's Breakers section has helped it jump up eight places to number 10. And here they are in the studio in front of the Top of the Pops neon set which was introduced in late 1985 and will loom large over the show until mid-1987. Chaps, before we tuck into Big Country, let's talk about that set because it's a radical departure from the usual top of the pop sets isn't it mm. apart from a few tweaks with the lighting it's an incredibly monolithic structure mm. and it's changed the vibe of top of the pops in my opinion from being a pop show in an obvious tv studio to one in a gig venue yeah i'm guessing that is what it's attempting exactly mm. and and you know we're firmly in that period now another thing with this this set and also it should be mentioned that this new half hour time slot means that the title sequence it literally lasts about six seconds before you mm. before you're in and then we're in this set which i mean the thing is that attempt to kind of make it like a venue i guess make it like a very bells and whistles venue i should feel a bit more of a sense of identification with the audience mm. whilst the pop stars would provide the alienation the audience might provide a sense of identification mm. but actually with this set it's the audience i feel most distant from because all you see is incessant clapping happiness and shit dancing and shit clothes mm. it's just this neon frightmare really so yeah it's already not looking good in terms of the production values of the show i think yeah i mean it's cut any interaction between presenter kids and act hasn't it yeah yeah so completely. you get no more shots of sulky girls chatting shit to each other while a band attempts to put their new single over mm. no more shots of gormless lads trying to chat up said sulky girls no more kids looking at themselves in the monitor it's essentially 
essentially a nightclub setting where everybody involved knows their place. Yeah, and a nightclub setting which essentially then engenders a certain response from the audience, mm. which is nothing but, yeah, whooping and frothy happiness. These are valid criticisms, but for me, this is kind of in my brain what Top of the Pops looks like. Mm. Those little blocks of flashing neon. Although the set for Big Country, they're, they're obviously like in a corner, which is more like a sort of industrial perspex greenhouse <laughs> with like big banks of different coloured bulbs. It's like they're in a grow tent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do think of this as kind of a classic set. I know it's very busy and I realise that it kind of changes the relationship between the bands and the viewers and the audience probably for the worst. Mm. But I can't help it. I, I just, I don't think you can have too much neon. I just think neon <laughs> is, is the... Neon, it just means glamorous nighttime stuff for mm. me. Um, no. Did you know, by the way, uh, where most of the world's neon comes from? Go on. Um, it is a gas... Um, and it's around us all the time. It's what gives that distinctive alluring glow. Um, most of it comes from Ukraine. Oh, really? I mean, it's used, obviously, in lights, but it's used in like the manufacturing of microchips and stuff as well. And basically, the Soviets in the uh, during the Cold War were really into the idea of making laser weapons, which mm. you need neon for. So they just amassed huge amounts of it. And then afterwards, there were just loads of neon facilities doing nothing, so they started selling it to the rest of the world. Uh. And it was expensive before, and inevitably it has now gone up by... It says here, 5,000%. Fucking hell. Imagine if Top of the Pops was going now, it'd be an absolute crisis. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, they were calling the Metro newspaper last week to bring back Top of the Pops, but I think this kiboshes the idea. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. If there's a dry yeah, ice shortage it? as well, yeah, we're fucked. Yeah, yeah. But the problem with this is, is that Top of the Pops have obviously pushed the boat up, but they've inadvertently set up a tableau that's going to suit certain acts down to the ground mm. and be absolutely unsuitable for other artists. I mean, Sunita and Man to Man with Man Parish are going to pitch up on top of the pops look at what they're going to be performing in and go oh yeah we could do some fucking business here mm. but others are going to look massively out of place as we shall see later on yeah and would you include big country in that because mm. to me in their performance and this is something you start detecting from here on in really in the top of the pops yes like you say certain bands it absolutely suits them down to the ground certain bands will smirk about being on such a stage mm. and they'll show that in their yes. performance. Um, and I, I get a bit of that from Big Country. Um, mm. I think they're sincere enough, but just knackered. I don't know. Mm, mm. So, Big Country, they're forever lumped into the windy Celtic triumvirate mm. of the early 80s with U2 and Simple Minds. Both of those have absolutely soared into the pop stratosphere. <laughs> but while the former played Wembley and the latter played Philadelphia, Big Country's only appearance on Live Aid was as part of the herd during the rendition of Do They Know It's Christmas at the End, mm. in between Roger Daltrey and Adam Ant. And uh, apparently that's down to Richard Jobson, the former lead singer of the Skids, who heard on the Dunfermline grapevine that Big Country were off the grid, assumed that they'd split up. And that information got passed on to his recently divorced wife, who was doing the PR for phonogram at the time and she passed it on to one of her artists a certain Mr Bob Geldof right so the invite never went out mm -hmm. of big country because he thought they'd split up and even 10 months after the event the pop world still divided between live aid acts and non-live aid acts and big country have found themselves in the latter camp yeah which is odd because you know in 84 Stuart Adamson says in an interview there's only four rock bands left in the world us you two Simple Minds and the Bunnymen 
And mm. out of them, it's definitely you two and Simple Minds who are, who are ascending at this point mm. and big country. I mean, look, the, before we go on, I've got to get this out of my system because I'm duty bound because I'm a music journalist. Um, big mm. country, <laughs> big cunty more like. So I, I just Ooh. have to get that out. <laughs> oh man, that has fully ruined the thing I was going to do. Yeah, I had an entire bit. Well, I mean, I must admit that the last time <laughs> I did, I think I did big country on, on CMP with, with Pricey. And, and it, yes. well, what Pricey was saying, it did kind of open my eyes a bit. Mm. Early on in Big Country's career, there's no reason I should have sort of snobbily shunted them aside when I do love a lot. I, I mean, I love early 80s Scottish bands, basically. I mean, to me, Scottish bands of the early 80s, Altered Images, Simple Minds, Orange Juice, etc., they're far more important to me and part of my listening than, say, the much more lauded Manchester bands of that era. But mm. much as by 1986 I'd started loathing the sound of, of Simple Minds, I'd really started properly hating Big Country as well by 86, I think. Yeah. Uh, I didn't like that just juiceless, big sky, clattery, big room sound um, that mm. rock had at that time. And, and Big Country seemed to, to absolutely enshrine that. Out of those three bands, of course, you two were going to be the winners mm. in terms of that big sound. But this is Big Country's biggest and consequently most ubiquitous hit. Mm. You know how most of the time when you think of a band, there's like a first song that you think of? With Big Country, mm. it's actually that Big Country one. But then it rapidly yeah. transmogrifies yeah, yeah. into this record that if nothing else, I think we can entirely blame for the likes of um, Delamitri and Diesel Park West and fucking bands like that. It's their biggest hit, yeah. but it's just a half-decent chorus in search of a verse that isn't dog shit really and there's all kinds of little horrible details to the sound and a fundamental lumpiness to the groove of this so I, I, I was li i was watching it just thinking thin lizzie would have done this about a billion times better mm. i mean by the way i was idly jotting whilst watching this and i, I jotted down a quick worst ever scottish ban list um Ooh. not including big country number five gun mm. <laughs> um number four run rig Ooh. number three texas number two mm. wet 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 and number one, um, although this is stretching it a bit in terms of them being Scottish, but fuck it, any excuse. Primal Scream, it's got to be for me. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I th I, look, I think my problem with Big Country is the same problem I start having at this time, aged 14, with Simple Minds and, and particularly U2, actually. I mean, there are aspects of those mm. bands that I like, but by 86... It's not just the sort of increasingly flatulent sound of their records that I don't like, but it's simply the fact that they're so positive and happy. I kind of like mm. guitar music to not be happy at this point in my life. I like it not to be anthemic, but kind of introspective, and not to be stirring and emotional and positive, but, but far more sort of mindless and angry and negative, really. Um, this mm. kind of period, 86, is part of my start of coming back over to metal a little bit and, and stopping laughing at it all, which I had done for previous yeah. years because Nawabaham got so preposterous. Mm. And because I've been digging back <laughs> into the 60s, I was looking for rock that was badly produced and murky and kind of properly heavy rather than just all this well-appointed, uber-produced guff which is what mm. big country seem to be doing. For well-produced stuff, I wanted it to be pop or hip-hop at that time because those productions were so yeah. much more exciting to listen to in this period than the way rock sounded, especially this kind of big rolled-up-sleeve long-coat rock like this. Oh, it, it's yes. just so passionate in this kind of fist-clenching way. It's very um, outdoorsy, this music. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, it's a kind of go-outdoors warehouse of rock. And, and at age 14, <laughs> I already knew that the outdoors, particularly the outdoors outside the city, you know, smelled really. So <laughs> it, I wasn't going to get fooled by Big Cunty. And in terms of this performance, as soon as it started, I was watching it and I thought, 
Gary Davis is going to say, what a great way to start the show. <laughs> <laughs> so it proved. <laughs> I mean, it's only been a year and a bit since her last single, but so much has changed in the world of pop that this is very much seen as the comeback record. Mm. So what's changed since the skull of the MXR M129 pitch transposer and the cry of Shah stirred the <laughs> Celtic heart of a young Simon Price and led him to a car park where Ian Asprey was shagging a groupie up against a coach? <laughs> Well, the look has changed, hasn't it? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, the most obvious change is that Big Country have lobbed their flannel shirts onto a bonfire and are now suited up to fuck. Mm. Bad 80s suited up to fuck at that, with the sleeves rolled right up and adorned with globular brooches and bootlace ties. Oh, dear me. Yeah, Stuart Adamson's got on a sort of oversized striped hessian bathrobe. Mm. It's a, a success coat, as Simon calls them. <laughs> it is remarkable. It looks like Howard Hughes' dressing gown, doesn't <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not so much a success coat as a I've just won a Californian Powerball lottery coat. Yeah. You didn't fucking get that from Millets, let me tell you. They all look terrible, I think, apart from Tony Butler on bass. Yeah. And his coat fits. Mm. The rest of these bean poles, they, they just look malnourished. They look like Rodney does when Dale gets him a sheepskin that's way too big for him. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I bet they always regret it. That camel coat. Yeah, exactly. Big coat tree. If big you will. coat tree, big coat down is what we're doing. Yes, um, <laughs> I, comfort is important to me increasingly mm. in my in mm. my dotage, you know. And it's like, God, you're going to be too hot, and not in the kind of pleasing sheen of sweat under the makeup kind of way. Just like people just never learn on no, top of the box. No, it's yeah. Big fucking coats all the way. It's awful. And you look at that coat, you just think, well, you can't go out in that coat. You, you certainly wouldn't go into the pub with it. No, you'd be absolutely terrified of people nubbing the fags out on mm. it, accidentally or otherwise. I just realised it's actually the same coat that one of the Corys wears in the Lost Boys when he first goes into the oh. comic shop. And they're like, we're just scope. What are you doing, man? Yeah, we're just scoping your civilian wardrobe. <laughs> As we're going to see, there's a lot of bad coatiness going on in this episode. Mm, there is. I've got to say, like, for all the talk of bigness, I don't receive this as a big tune. Right. It's kind of a sketch of something big. Mm. But it's just, it's sort of quite chuggy with quite forgettable vocals. And there's like no top line, you know, there's nothing you can really play on a penny whistle. And. Yeah, it's it's kind of the same issue that I had with um, Deliverance by the Mission, which was a, an mm. opener of an episode I did a while ago. And it's like, yeah, this is here we come with the big song, and it's like, it's okay, but where where is it? You know, mm. it just it's yeah. it's kind of quite. Um, if we're talking about you know the outdoors, it's like a sort of cloud of a rock song. Yeah, no, kind absolutely. Of, you know, it, it looks massive, but there's kind of no substance to it. You know, and also in the performance. I mean, maybe this is my, my, my smuggery detector is a bit too sensitive, but I get the sense there's a slight smirk to this appearance. And, and mm. at the time, I remember getting the sense from interviews at the time that Big Country were usually scornful of pop. I mean, Bruce Watson says in an interview this year, you know, I'm not a pop star. I hate that word. I just want to play my guitar. And, mm. and Stuart Adamson, in, a, in the same interview, he, he says, it would have been easy for us to come out with The Crossing Volume 2. It would have been a wise career move. And we could have done it in two weeks because nobody can pastiche us as well as we can ourselves. Mm. I don't do things to make career moves for the sake of selling an extra few hundred thousand records. Mm. So they've, they've got that smuggery. But at the same time, this is totally trying to, to be a chart smash. Yeah. And the way they're dressed... 
it does appear like a decision was made. Yes. You know, the, 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 this is our look now. Someone chomping on cigars, banging on the table, going, big coats! <laughs> That's it. <laughs> but it is only the bass player looks at halfway decent. Mm. He looks okay, actually. His coat kind of suits him, although there's a bit of shawaddy-waddiness to it as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's got white shoes on, which is white shoes and white trousers. He's gone mm. double white there, Oof. which is uh, a bold move. Yeah. But the other guitarist, I, I forget his name, he looks dreadful. And mm. um, the drummer appears to have a leather coat on. But again, it's that sleeve rolled up thing. <sighs> Why fucking do that? I it's mean, 1986, though. Yeah, I know. That, I it know. was the style at the time. I know, I know. But that's an unrehabilitatable <laughs> look, that. <laughs> As we've learned in previous chart music, Sarah, you're, you're a bit fond of a bit of man wrist, aren't you? <laughs> I am a fan. <laughs> and I'm equal opportunities as well with women, too. It's just, you know, a lot of a good leather jacket it's acceptable on women on men though Neil come on back me up <laughs> not on big coats though I, I would draw the line at the forearm because it, it's it's that dissonance isn't it it's like you've got a big coat on yeah. but you, you want to expose your forearms what's going on there if you've got a big coat on and you're rolling the sleeves up you're obviously fucking sweating cobs <laughs> just take the fucking coat off mate I don't know I, yeah. might, I mean I might try the look I've never done that look <laughs> go on do it do I it. might do it I might try I'm off out tonight to Brum um, Free the forearm, man. I will do the forearm, yeah. <laughs> is it both forearms or is it just one? No, that looks strange, wouldn't it? Both sides. <laughs> That's Mason's territory, Neil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, you can't, you can't just have one. That makes you look like you've just come off a long shift of mm. assisting the country vet. Ah, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, up to my elbow. But no, actually, oddly enough, I'm off to a uh, Masonic bash later on this month. Oh, you know. You oh, yeah. You so can't tell everyone that. God, they're not going to let you in now. Oh, no, no, don't worry. It's, it's all above board. <laughs> it's all above board. My, my friend is uh, the Grand Worshipful Master this year. And um, my <laughs> even closer... Yes, and my even closer friend is his partner. So she's got to do the ladies' night, and I've got to refer to her as Lady Sarah all night, which I'm looking forward to. But crucially, it's at Warwick Masonic Lodge, and I can't wait to stumble down a corridor and stumble into some arcane ritual that I really shouldn't bear witness to. Um, but I might do the long coat that night. Good Lord. Wow, okay. <laughs> and when it is <laughs> ladies' night... Neil, don't forget to tell Lady Sarah that everything's going to be all right. <laughs> of course. The, the, the major thing that's pissed me off about Big Country and them being on this episode is obviously preparing for Chart Music Podcast. Yes, I found out that, yeah, he, that they backed Roger Daltrey. Yeah. His 85 solo album, Under a Raging Moon. Yeah. They were watching his back. <laughs> But it made me inevitably have to Google the sleeve, which inevitably made me physically sick. So oh, cheers. go on, go on. Cheers, big cunty. No, I mean, it's just a facial shot of adultery, but that's all I need oh. uh, for that emetic trigger. Not being um, a centaur, though. No, he's not being a centaur. He, he's never going to top that for bad LP <laughs> no, covers, he's not. man. No. Ride a rock horse. <laughs> My final thought on big country is that I always think of them as big country because of the song yes. In a Big Country, yes. which they wrote and could have written to scan however they chose, mm. but they kind of did. I mean, that sort of erroneous emphasis can be really fun and playful, but you've got to do it like deliberately. And this is like a metal guru, but in a bad way. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, in a big country, you sit on sofa, play with Roger <laughs> Daltrey and eat some pasta. This is the single that was going to kick them up into the big league. And yeah, you do get this feeling of a slight smugness as if they're saying, oh, here we are 
are on top of the pots, but get a good eyeful of us while you can because we'll be doing bigger things from here on in. But you could argue that it actually turned out to be the single that killed them because apparently Phonogram was so desperate to get them over in America that their new producer, Walter Turbot, was caught by guitarist Bruce Watson lauding the tracks in the studio with his own guitar parts, which Mm. led to Stuart Adamson, who formed the skids and felt that Richard Jobson had aced him out and took over, believing that it was happening all over again and everything was coming out of their hands once more. Right. Right, but I mean, the trouble is with big country, they have this unerring belief that they're real musicians, and if they were just left to make real music, everything would be all right. But mm. what actually emerges from their albums is, fuck me, apart from the singles, Jesus, it's dreary, dreary shit. Really? It really, really is. So they were never, yeah. ever in a million years going to get as big as you 2 and Simple mm. Minds, who were both a bit more playful with pop. I mean, granted, just as big and wide and flatulent, but you never got the feeling that you 2 I don't know, sort of had contempt for... The, I'm not saying big country... I contempt for their audience but you two were happy with any audience whereas mm. big country you felt they wanted specific you know proper real music fans to be into them and that's just going to alienate everybody i think they did really try for the yankee dollar if you mm. will in the mm. next album which turned out to be the lowest selling big country album in america so yeah, yeah. they fucked it yeah they fucked it are we counting them as shaking minds at this point then oh yeah yeah that's it <laughs> so the following week look away nudged up two places to number eight its highest position but the follow-up the teacher would only get to number 28 at the end of june and although the seer entered the lp chart at number two they finished 1986 with hold the heart only getting to number 55 in december the first big country single to miss the top 40 since their debut single harvest home in september of 1982 Although they came back in 1988 with King of Emotion getting to number 16 in the singles chart and Peace in Our Time getting to number 9 in the LP chart in August, diminishing returns continued to set in throughout the 90s and they finally split up in 2000. way to start big country and look away so all on my own in the studio tonight well not exactly in my own also in the studio we have george michael we have aha and it's immaterial but first here's this week's top 40 over this video from falco and rock me amadeus Whipped back to Davis, standing in front of the disgusting new Top of the Pops logo, sporting an appallingly oversized light grey jacket, which appears to be made out of an elephant's hide, with the sleeves rolled right up the elbow, over a disgusting blocky multicoloured shirt and matching grey trousers. Oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> a big country had their sleeves rolled back as well, but they were playing instruments, Gary. What's your fucking excuse? I mean, the overall effect is Miami Vice YTS lad, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, he's a medallion man, you know, mm. revealing that chunky Seiko on his wrist. But the shirt's buttoned right up, isn't it? Mm. Oh, yeah. No, I can't be doing with that. I must point out, by the way, the way to do the sleeves pushed up is you push them up. You don't go past the elbow. That's the thing. Mm. Once you go past the elbow, all is lost. And wait a minute, you know, Sarah. Too I, many I've wrinkles. got to check this shit because I might be wearing this later. Um, <laughs> is it just a push-up? Should I fold? No, no, no. No, just just, just push-up. Yeah. Okay. I mean, some garments will 
not allow this, you know, but mm. ideally you want it to just under the elbow. I don't know. I don't know anything about it. You know more than us. Yeah. I, I live with a man who has long arms and is usually a tall man with long arms who, who normally, most jacket sleeves are too short for right. him, so he has to. Uh, what's Otherwise, uh, just, you know, like it's just, it's it's utility, but, it, mm. it, you know, it, he makes it work. Okay, okay. Um, anyway, but yes, don't go over the elbows because then, you know, you do get the elephant hide effect. So, yeah, just, just <laughs> shove them up until they come to a natural stop just before the elbow. Okay, I'll buy that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to be fair, with, with Gary's fit, there's a pearlescence to his oversized doctor's coat, isn't there? Mm. You know, but I, I like it not. <laughs> and that is a blouse. It's definitely a blouse, which is fine. Men can wear blouses in the 80s and indeed any time. Mm. But it's sort of purple and peach and orange and it's, it's a lot going on. Yeah. I reckon that's a Casio as well, not a Seiko. Ah, well spotted. <laughs> what a great way to start, says Davis, before informing us he's without a partner tonight. Oh, but not for long, knowing Gary Davis and his stable. <laughs> right. And then spoilers a sizable chunk of tonight's bill of fear before throwing us into Rock Me Amadeus by Falco. Born in Vienna in 1957, Johann Herzl attended the Vienna Conservatoire, Austria's version of the Kids from Fame, at the age of 16, but could only stick it out for a year and ended up doing national service for a bit. In the late 70s, he gravitated towards the Weimar Republic-like nightlife of Vienna, playing the bass in local band The Hallucination Company, before switching to the art-rock anarcho band Dradi Warble and adopting the stage name John DeFalco, where he wrote and performed the song Gans Vienne, which he would play as a solo interlude at their gigs, which featured the line, All of Vienna is on heroin today. When the manager Marcus Spiegel saw the now-entitled Falco perform the song at an anti-drugs benefit gig in 1980, he signed him up to a solo deal and he put it out as a single in 1981, where it was immediately banned by Austrian radio. But when he put out an English-language version, it got to number 11 in Austria, but failed to chart anywhere else. At the end of that year, he lined up a follow-up single, Helden von Heute, a tribute to David Bowie's heroes, but his label preferred the B-side, Der Kommissar. And although Falco was convinced that it was too extreme for the pop-crazed Teutons, as it was mainly a rap that leaned hard into Super Freak by Rick James, it soared to number one in both Austria and West Germany. And although it did nothing over here, it became a top ten hit across continental Europe and got to number 74 in America. And an English-language cover by After the Fire got to number 47 in the UK in April of 1980. An attempt to capitalise on the success of De Commissar failed when his second LP failed to do anything outside the Germanosphere, so in 1985 he linked up with the producers Rob and Ferdy Bolland, the South African Dutch brothers, who had a number one hit in Finland and Norway with their synthy Vietnam War song You're in the Army Now in 1981. Yes, that You're in the Army Ooh. Now. Stand up and fight. This is a lead-off cut from his forthcoming LP, Falco Dry, which is due out in October and has been put out by his new label, A&M. It was inspired by the 1984 film Amadeus, which won eight Oscars only three weeks ago, and the original version has already ripped through Europe last year. 
But when it was remixed for the USA and UK with beefier drums and some bird on vocals, it entered our charts four weeks ago at number 58, then soared 31 places to number 27, then another 17 places to number 10 after he appeared on Top of the Pops. This week, as it begins its third week at number one in America, it's nipped up two places over here to number three. And as he's already been in the top of the pop studio twice, here's our first chance to see the video, sort of. Hmm. Where do we start, Chavs? Because we, we've got a bit of a problem here, haven't we? What, uh, fastest loss? <laughs> well, because 40 seconds in, yes. this happens. Well, we don't really know what he's singing about, so we might as well have a look at this week's top 40. Down to number 40, it's Culture Club with Move Away. Ah! <laughs> what the fuck are you doing, Top of the Pops? No. Yeah, what it's bad. It's doing? very bad. Very it's so fucking rude. I hate it when they go, hey, that was great when it wasn't, but it's a lot worse when they go, well, who cares? We don't know what you're singing about anyway. Yeah. <laughs> what a senseless diss. Yes. The video gets squeezed into a little box so Gary Davis can shit out the charts from number 40 to number 11. So there's no band picks. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no respect given to the charts and no chance to enjoy the number three single in the land properly. Yeah. In a world where there's no MTV for most people, no access to cable or satellite for most people, how else are they going to see the fucking video if it's not on top of the box? Yeah, it's really bad. This is so clearly a bad idea. Obviously, it's not Gary Davis's idea, but whoever's idea it was. No. It's it's the worst idea, I would say, since very early let's do the top ten rundown at the very start of the show Mm. thing. I mean, I'd have been only 14, but I would have been sat there just thinking, frankly, this is a shambles. Mm. I mean, it's chaos. Yeah. And it's an absence of sort of or absence of vision for, for the charts. It's exactly what you see in the rundown here. It, it's really poorly formatted. Mm. Every single bit of it. The script that Davis has to speak, it's kind of geeky, but imparts no information at all. No. And the one thing that really angered me was this occasional deliberate refusal to name the records they're talking yeah. about. They just name the artist. It's re- I'm sorry, I'm sounding like a spod, but it's infuriatingly imprecise. Yeah, I mean, the <laughs> assumption, obviously, is that, oh, well, the kids watching this will know yeah. what, what the name of the song is. But I don't, not from a fucking... No distance i'm an old man now this is it and the decision to have davis speak over falco is kind of disastrous both for falco but also for any idea of actually knowing what the hell's going on in the charts yeah and and it's just kind of demonstrative i think of the general lack of care that's going on here Mm. and that rush that we were talking about engendered by the switch in time that now set in so let's put three different things on the screen none of which are going to make any sense because they're cancelling each other out i mean even the top of the pops of the 90s have more respect for the charts than this and that was very little Mm. it's like the nine o'clock news running a story about the bombing of Libya and then Sue Lawley's saying well oh you know how this is going to turn out so here's some pictures of fucking <laughs> Fergie that I mean what Sarah said is spot on mm. I would have been really pissed off at that line that Davis says you know about oh we, well we could, you know we don't know what he's on about yes we fucking do yeah and, and, if I'm a superstar, for fuck's sake. <laughs> but also, like, what's it to you? I mean, because it, it yeah. obviously it's a double dose of disrespect there because it's like, well, you're mm. talking over the, the, you know, an artist's work after the first verse, but also it's like, oh, it's in foreign. Who gives exactly. a shit? Exactly. I would think that was his interjection. But, I, well, yeah, I mean, the thing is that my bloke somehow managed to get into his 40s without ever having experienced Rock Me Amadeus or Falco at all. What? And I know, I know. It's just something that passed him by and he was like, 
what what the fuck is this? I was like, okay, I'm going to stop this here and I'm going to pull up the full thing on YouTube so you don't yeah. have to have your first experience of this tune ruined yeah. by Gary fucking Davis barreling in and going, hey, mm. well, what's over there? Which is, you know, in this mm. kind of attention apocalypse. <laughs> if any video doesn't need reducing to about a third of the screen, it's this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Should we talk about Falco now? Fuck Gary Davis. Let's talk about Falco. Yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah, fucking Falco and fucking Rock Me Amadeus. Yes. What a wonderful thing. And it was so great to see the sheer delight on, on my bloke's face. Like, what could this be? What is this delightful mm. nonsense? Like, it's it, it's bonkers. It's so brilliant mm. and so not like anything else. And I remember this striking me at the time when I was a kid and going, having that same response, really. Like, what? Yes. Even with less context about music you know as i was sort of forming my opinions at the time you know it's really hard to describe it and it's very hard to critique it because it's mm. i think bonkers is the word <laughs> bonkers is the word it's, it's so joyful and it's kind of you don't even think of it or i don't i don't think of it as like oh it's it's a white guy rapping because it's not really it's like anti-flow it's like he's cutting up mm. what he's so it's sort of in deutschlich and yeah, german yeah kind of consonant clusters and the shape of words in German sort of lends itself more to this kind of non-flow than English. And he's sort mm. of bending the language into different angles as you go, mm. as if that's just a thing that you do, as if like, yeah, this is what I'm doing and this is completely appropriate. Yeah. He's establishing himself for the rest of the world as like the, a son of Vienna, you know, like, oh, you mm. know, like, like Mozart, mm. you know, no big deal, me and Wolfgang just <laughs> hanging out in history, yeah. you know. Having some nice cakes. <laughs> I'm a cool Austrian guy and you know who else is a cool Austrian guy? No, 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 Mozart, it's cool. I mean, this is not something any of us could attempt at karaoke, let's be fair. No. <laughs> not, I, no. I don't think no. anyone can or, or should attempt it, but it's like, you need a concrete diaphragm for it. It's like, you can't, he must have had abs for days like that yeah. for, for three minutes straight or you could grate cheese on them <laughs> yeah I mean only he could do this mm. it's not coverable you're absolutely right and it obviously it has a great chorus that once you have heard it is just graven into your skull forever mm. it's so simple it's kind of almost insultingly simple and daft and glorious I mean it's yeah. if you could remain kind of stony faced watching and listening to and experiencing Rock Me Amadeus then you know there's you got you're going to have to leave my house I'm afraid <laughs> never come back <laughs> I'll come back to that word bonkers, Sarah, because I think you, 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 it's bonkers lyrically. It's, I mean, but every single second of this record is bonkers. Yeah. Like, the sound of it's nuts as well. Mm. And I think we underestimate in this country. You know, Falco is a complete hero in Middle Europe, mm. yeah, in yeah. Austria and Germany. He really is hugely venerated, which is odd because ultimately he was always just chaos really yeah. Falco I mean as a human being as well you know he was it's funny that he was spotted doing this anti-drugs thing because that certainly wasn't something that he did yeah while well, doing a drug song yeah yeah he's a relic of an age really in which pop stars could be totally out of control when yeah. all that post-punk artiness and be appreciated for indeed. it indeed and, and he's coming from that post-punk kind of arty thing but he hits massive commercial success so mm. Rock Me Amadeus is just this weird outlier of a record its impact here was definite because there was that elemental confusion in all of us who first heard it. Is this got anything to do with the film? Is this on the soundtrack? Mm. You know, is it part of it? Yeah. It took some time to establish that, you know, the song wasn't at all in the film. Although the film's kind of punkification of the of Mozart's look 
does extend here a little bit. Um, I don't think that mattered in the States at all, which is where it became majorly big, to the point mm. where in 86, you know, Falco's considering moving there permanently. But the other yeah. touchstone for this I, 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 that it reminded me of is Adam Ant. And, and not yeah. necessarily sonically, but the video has a lot of similarities to Adam Ant videos in just being mm. these big, you know, epic productions that are absolutely dazzling. And it's the first record in my recall, really, in my life, to put Germanness, or rather, sorry, Austrianness, in our charts since Da Da Da, really. Life is life last year. Yeah, there is that, but God, <laughs> in terms of Austrianness, it's far yeah. better. Opus last year, Falco, this is it's, it's just a golden age for Erster Rock, isn't it? Mm, indeed. And there's an actual clip on YouTube of Opus and Falco together oh performing this song. <laughs> and it's fucking really good. Oh, Opus wow. are fucking brilliant, man. Oh, wow. I've got to seek that out. It'll be mm. on the TMP playlist. Video playlist. playlist. Yeah, um, brilliant. By the way, you've got to put uh, De Commissar on the, uh, on the playlist. Oh, my God. What a tune. What a fucking tune. And, and, you know, doing CMP for this has reminded me of De Commissar, and I just haven't been able to stop playing it. It's so fucking good. Yeah, it's, it's mm. amazing. And uh, this, the same reaction happened. I was like, all right, here, here was his first single over here, and, and Bloke was like beside himself going, how have I never heard this? What? Yeah. I am now the yeah. biggest it's Falco fan. It's astonishing that wasn't a hit. And hilarious video with because it's about a couple on the run from the law yeah. with yeah. a giant bag of coke just going up oh, oh there's a yeah. cop better run away and he's kind of doing that it's a really bad kind of green screen thing with like cop cars mm. and he's just doing that terrible like on the spot running yeah and then occasionally just wiping his nose in a very sort of yeah oh no i have been very naughty and <laughs> i mean that's the thing falco is extremely i will often say that things have gone coke as a you know as, as a negative which it usually is like london having gone coke and a lot mm. of you know a lot of things having just gone brash and shallow in the worst way but I, Falco was very coke in mm. the best way yeah yeah if the Commissar came out like today with that video oh you know people would be going fucking nuts about it oh, it looks yes. like a TikTok video doesn't it it does, it does. <laughs> but luckily, Rotmi Amadeus isn't necessarily you know, something I'm playing every week. I'm glad I experience it every time I experience it. I mean, and, and lest we forget, you know, we have to be grateful it exists because if only without Amadeus, there'd be no help me, Dr. Zayas. <laughs> that wouldn't be a life worth living. Can I play know. the piano anymore? <laughs> of course you can. Well, I couldn't before. <laughs> but also, also beyond that, right? Rotmi Amadeus is, is illustrative of something that's going on in the charts throughout mm. 86. Yes, the dinosaurs still walk among us, but there's been a kind of minor extinction event as well. Previous yes. to 86, Radio 1 didn't really have a daytime playlist, and that's why sort of a lot of their DJs could just play any old shite that they fancied. Mm. This daytime playlist sort of gets reintroduced 86, and it's to do with what Radio 1 DJs predict might be a hit. Yeah. So what starts happening with that kind of more organised playlist based around new songs that could be hits is that in the next few months in 86 we're going to get really big hits from unknown artists fundamentally mm. who make the list so I mean none of them are as remotely as good as Falco but you know It Bites have a hit and Hollywood Beyond mm. have a hit and Owen Paul yeah. and Cutting Crew and Robbie Neville and all these people Ooh, and, and golden all, days well quite but you know there's also conspicuous failures by artists who could previously have counted on radio support you know Howard Jones Nick Kershaw these people yes Ultravox, they all have singles that don't chart and it's quite disruptive mm. to the charts in a sense. The trouble is all these new bands coming through have no big fan base and they usually disappear when the follow-up you know, doesn't make the cut or isn't a hit. Or doesn't get on Wogan. That's it. And the older acts, they got kind of branded as failures and they can't come back. 
I mean, it creates a mm. sort of vacuum in the charts, really, that's going to last the rest of 86. I mean, Jack Your Body is the first number one of 87, and it gets no radio play. And then we have an onslaught of Star Aiken and Walkman after that. But this is this weird yeah. period where, yeah, yeah, the big dinosaurs are about, but they're mainly rock bands. Pop dinosaurs are, are going. Mm. Um, and they're being replaced by old little records like Rock Me Amadeus, yeah. Gate Crashing the Charts. The great thing about the video is that he puts Falco over as a right Euro Ponce. And to my <laughs> mind, that's always a good thing. Yeah. Your, yeah, Euro yeah, yeah. Ponce has always livened up the charts in the mid 80s, whether you like the song or not. You know, I'm, mm. I'm thinking about people like Ryan Paris. But my favourite Euro Ponce of the era has to be Sabrina's keyboard player in a <laughs> clip I found on Spanish television that sadly doesn't seem to be there anymore because he is poncing it up on that keyboard so hard that you actually forget that you're supposed to be looking at Sabrina's breasts. <laughs> but Falco here, he comes off as someone who would drive his day right onto the beach at Marbella take the Union Jack towel that you've hung over the sun lounger at four in the morning <laughs> rub it against his arse throw it in the sea and then spend the rest of the day just lying there in some very expensive pants <laughs> waiting for someone to fetch him a Malibu looking down his nose at you in your crappy CNA shorts mm. yeah apparently he did have this extreme self-confidence that uh, you know that was quite hard to take sometimes it was very exact about I always love that when I perceive it I mean yeah of course people like that can be a massive pain in the arse but they can also just get some really great stuff done because it's like Mm -hmm. no this is Mm -hmm. how we're doing this Mm. which is something backed up by every single interview I've ever read of Falco he's just fucking hilarious it's Um, an image (laughs) that Falco's happy to play up in an interview with the NME in a London hotel this month where he flicks his fag ash into a complimentary bowl of dry roasted peanuts (laughs) tells Simon Witter that he's very good mates with Mozart and saw him in the pub three days ago (laughs) yeah yeah stops talking every now and then so he can watch his eyebrows go up and down in the mirror (laughs) tells the photographer to take one picture and get out, arsehole. Yes. Um, yes. Kicks a light over while the photographer's setting up and then locks himself in the toilet for a bit, eventually comes out, hugs everyone in the room and concludes by telling the readership of the enemy, I fuck everybody, I fuck you all. <laughs> That's what you want yeah. out of your pop stars. You yeah, yeah. Completely, yeah, yeah. completely. <laughs> that's not just a coke thing i feel like that's you know coke takes the edge off that sort of personality you know mm. but i do think that if there's any reason for us to be here as tragically overdeveloped creatures that we are i mean other to be like kind and all that shit it's mm. to give the fullest and most honest expression to whatever ideas happen to come to you and they might not be whatever the value or worth of the ideas they might be something or nothing but if you have them and you have the wherewithal you should express them with your entire self and blow the bubble mm. as big as you can for the world to see and that's what falco did here with his bizarro little bop about a tragic 18th century musical genius which is why we're talking about it 37 years later and 25 years after he died so you know he Mm. he did he did it right maybe some austrian will do a song about him in a 200 years time who knows? Maybe so. Maybe so. I mm, hope the video's good. <laughs> oh, it'd be holograms by then, wouldn't it? Or or a pill that you take. Maybe by then holograms will be old hat and people will be kind of doing the thing of going back to more like practical, real shit, you know, but like actual mm. candy floss for a wig. Mm. We need to get over to Europe because I've got a friend who was in Belgium over, over Christmas and New Year. And apparently after New Year's Eve sort of goes, you know, after midnight, mm. loads of stations just start playing fucking folk over here. Really? <laughs> I think it's brilliant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That'd be a great... Great way to see the new year. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> the following week, Rock Me Amadeus took one more step up the ladder and sat there at number two for two weeks, biding its time before finally assuming its place upon the summit of Poppenberg, where it stood proud for a week before being deposed by... <sighs> The Chicken Song by Spitting Image. The follow-up, Vienna Calling, got to number 10, but he never troubled the top 40 again, and he became a German-speaking concern only, eventually dying in a car crash in the Dominican Republic in 1998 at the age of 40. But the song became and remains the first and only German language number one in the UK and the first foreign language single to get there since Je Temme by Serge Gainsbourg and Jane Birkin in 1969. And of course, the song lived on in the musical Stop the Planet of the Apes, <laughs> I Want to Get Off, starring Troy McClure. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Falco and Rock Me Amadeus right now in the top of the Bob Studio at number eight in the charts with Train of Thought. Here's Aha! Standing in front of the new Top of the Pops logo, which was introduced a few weeks ago, says something that I can't fucking remember for the life of me, as I was too busy staring at the shitness of the new Top of the Pops logo. (laughs) Why? It's fucking disgusting, isn't it? We've said it before, but fuck me, this is awful. Quite busy. Yeah, somewhat overly busy. I mean, the perfect logo for its time, Mm. but perhaps that's why you hate it so much. Yeah. <laughs> it does look like of the top pops. <laughs> of pop, of pop the top. He eventually gets round to introducing Train of Thought by Aha. Formed in Oslo in 1978, Bridges were a Norwegian rock band formed by the drummer Pal Waktar and the guitarist and vocalist Mags Fuhrer Holman. After recruiting more members and Waxhaw switching to keyboards, they put out their debut LP, Facultog, in 1980. And while touring that LP, they played a gig in Asker, where one of the audience, a young lad called Morton Harkett, introduced himself to them afterwards with a view to having a go at singing. 
After Bridges set to work on their second LP in 1982, Waktar and Fiora Holman, who had always written their songs in English, felt the band had gone as far as they could in Norway and pushed for them to relocate to London. But when the rest of the band didn't fancy it, they dissolved on the spot, the LP was unreleased and the duo spent six months on their own in the UK to no avail. On their return to Norway, they linked up with Harkett, who by that time was fronting the covers band Soldier Blue, and invited him to start a new band, which got their name when they riffled through Waktar's songbook for a word that was used in both Norway and England. They returned to London in January of 1983 and recorded and shopped round a demo. And by the end of the year, they signed a deal with Warner Brothers, who linked them up with Tony Mansfield, formerly of New Music, and prepared an old Bridges number called the Juicy Fruit Song, which Harkett heard at their gig and liked and had worked on together in Norway. That song, by now renamed Take On Me, was put out as their first single in October of 1984, but only got to number 137 over here, although it got to number three in Norway. However, the parent company in America got a glance of how the band looked and signed them up over there, telling them to get rid of Mansfield, get in Alan Tarne, who wrote and produced We Don't Talk Anymore and co-wrote Wired for Sound for Cliff Richard, and had spent the early 80s writing January, February for Barbara Dixon and co-wrote Orchard Road with The Old Sailor. When it was recorded and put out again in April of 1985, it flopped over here once more, but over in stateside USA, Warner Brothers pushed the boat right out for the band, forking out for a massively expensive video which took four months to make when Morton was displayed in all his pencilly gorgeousness, which was played on MTV and in clubs for a month before it was released in America, where it immediately got into the Billboard 100 and eventually got to number one. Emboldened by said video, it was released for a third time in the UK in September, and by the end of October, it began a three-week stand at number two, held off by The Power of Love by Jennifer Rush. The next single, The Sun Always Shines on TV, went one better, spending two weeks at number one in January of this year. And this, the follow-up, is the third cut from their debut LP, Hunting Iron Low, which entered the album chart at number 24 in November of 85 and immediately slid down, but then rallied in the wake of the success of The Sun Always Shines on TV and spent five weeks at number two in January and February of this year. It entered the chart at number 23 a fortnight ago, and they were immediately invited to cluster under the neon on top of the pops, which helped it soar 14 places to number 9. This week, it's only nipped up one place to number 8, but that's not stopping them from making a return to the studio. Looks like Top of the Pops has given up on that let's repeat old performances bit. Mm. 
Which is a good thing, I think. Anyway, aha, as they were saying in Norway around about this time, Duran Duran, Spandar Ballet, Hollywood Beyond, Bluey Sum, Wixie out of EastEnders, <laughs> can you hear me, Maggie Thatcher? Your boys took one hell of a beating. <laughs> because at this moment in time, the kings of pop, the Vikings of pop, if you will, they're from Norge, and oh, they're fucking Gorge. <laughs> it's more foreigners, hooray. It's yeah. What Gary probably said is, oh, some more people from somewhere. Yeah, where are the English people in pop? What's going on? Mm. Here's the thing. Why did this not open the show? Mm. Whose idea was it to not have this? Uh, because it's, this is not my favourite of Aha's many, many very, very good songs, but it's really not bad. It's propulsive without being too hectic. Mm. I know it's got some sort of compressed panpipes in there, but, you know, we can we can forgive that. Yeah. But it's, you know, this is this is what should have started off the show. I think I have some bad luck, actually. Maybe it's just me. I can't remember the last time that we did an episode and I was like, wow, that actually was a great start to the show. Yeah, yeah. It's usually something that's a bit lacking. Mm. I think, Sarah, if, say, before um, Sun Away Shines on TV got to number one, that would be a definitive show opener. It couldn't go anywhere else. Yeah, mm. yeah. Whereas this, yeah, it is propulsive, but it's a little bit more melancholy and a little bit more down, so maybe they shunted it on mm. um, in preference of the big blustery nonsense from Big Country instead. Yeah. It's yeah. a commute song, isn't it? Uh, uh, apparently based on the works of existentialist Norwegian writers and Dostoevsky, which is, you know, it's a bit of an advance on lovely girls and nice relationships, which bands of this ilk are supposed to be singing about. Yeah. It, it's essentially cardiac arrest by madness without the horrible ending. Right. <laughs> I'm not sure they've ever fully gotten their due as a really, really good band. They are, aha. Uh-huh. Um, st- and they're still going out. It's not bad for a heritage act, you know, because mm. they music is quite sort of grand and sophisticated with sort of oblique English as a second language lyrics and yeah this sort of pervasive melancholy Mm. this is not like a melancholy led tune but it's definitely in there oh yeah yeah Mm. you know it permeates their whole sound like a sort of gentle mist (laughs) I just have to point something out by the way that I didn't spot this um but they've taped over the yam in Yamaha yes Powell's Yamaha keyboard, he, he's blocked out the yam <laughs> on the side. Well done. Brilliant. So it reads aha. Yeah. And then he picks it up and wanders over to Morton so they can do a bit of a quo. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is nice. It looks really heavy as well. I think he regretted it. Yeah, but... it's not a keytar, is <laughs> it? It's not a keytar. Although I should say, in the Moon Bears, I did stick I Only Want to Help You in front of Roland on my yes. keyboard. So. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a classic way. Um, how do we feel about keytars, by the way? If there was one line about i'd definitely have a go on it's it it's so clearly one of those things where someone had the idea mm. and went well is there any reason we couldn't do this like well, no maybe the trouble <laughs> is they've become hipster um guitars uh, now mm. whereas there is, there is one photograph for which i excuse the existence of guitars and that's of james brown at his worst looking really groggy and big and fucked um and he's playing a guitar with a big grin on his face <laughs> oh, <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, more Euroness. Mm, indeed. And of course, until very recently, the British opinion of Norwegian pop was that it solely existed to provide a string of entertaining null pointers in the Eurovision Song Contest. Mm. But last year, the hardcore rockabilly sound of Bobby Sox took the continent by the throat <laughs> with Lady Schwinger, Lady Rock and Roll. They'll be hosting Eurovision in a couple of weeks' time. And now a horror have come along. Mm. Fucking hell. 
everything's coming up Norway. And the Norwayness is important. In as, I mean, I know we shouldn't draw national characteristics like this. Like, but we're going to. We're going to. Well, I, <laughs> I mean, you do start thinking of wintry kind of melancholy and gloom. Mm. Um, that, that that is threaded through throughout Ahar's work, and I totally agree with Sarah. But Ahar are majorly underrated. Mm. Their first couple of albums are fantastic records, but they were never comfortable, really. I think with the roles they were being shoved into in '86. Pop needed, in a sense, a new Duran Duran, yes. you know, this new monolith. And I feel Aha was sort of somewhat unfairly ushered into that role mm. with Harkett as the new Le Bon because he was so fucking gorgeous. Yes. And you mentioned them actually, Al. If you can say this sort of big three of pop were on their way out, you know, Duran are failing at this point, Spandau are definitely failing, mm. and Wham are splitting up, then Aha are the kind of only likely contenders. Yes to replace all those posters on the wall, you know, mm. and get that screaming hysteria back. And you look at the two other big pop happenings of late 85, 86, Curiosity Killed the Cat and Five Star, they're not going to fill that space. No. Uh, but, you know, it's very telling as well that AHA rapidly become not only a watchword for pop, but you start seeing in interviews, you know, proper bands saying, you know, we're not fucking AHA. Yeah. Much as they would have said, you know, we're not fucking Wham or we're not fucking Kajigugu a few years earlier. In other words, we're not successful. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it. I mean, all of this masks the actual kind of melancholy and gloom of Aha's work. They start off their career with one of the biggest pop video smashes of the entire 80s. Mm. And then they seem to spend the rest of the 80s kind of retreating from that glare of attention that they get. Yes. You know? I can't say I was actually massively into Aha early on because Take On Me grew old pretty fast for me. Right. But The Sun Always Shines on TV, uh, uh, that turned my head around completely because mm. I thought it was Ace. Mm. And then the album also had a couple of corkers on it, non-singles. Yeah. But also this, and that there's this kind of interesting rub in Aha between the obvious total hotness of Morton Harkin. Mm. Well, they're all good-looking the di- lads, aren't they? They are. They're a good-looking bunch of lads, yeah. but... There's this dismalism in the lyrics mm. <laughs> and the music. The music's kind of big, but it's also kind of associates-like. It's kind of Ultravox-like, mm. um, which contrasts with the role they're being set up for. Yeah. They were never going to be perhaps as consistently massive as Duran were early on, mm. um, but there's some amazing, you know, Hunting High and Low, Crywolf. Things like Train of Thought I actually really like, and I really like Manhattan Skyline as well, um, oh, even God, though they're yeah. never really going to bother the top three. Mm. Duran kind of had this thing and not desperation but um, I'd say Duran always managed to add something new every now and then to show that they were sort of a, vaguely attentive to what was going on and sort of were progressive Aha didn't they were not that kind of band they were, they were much more not traditional they were almost an indie minded band who'd become pop stars mm. they just seemed massively uncomfortable as well with a vital part of the pop process at least in the UK which is being a gobby bitch in the pages of Smash Hits, you know, <laughs> confessing all. They never really did that. I mean, even at this point, they've had a number one hit, you know, and they've got this massively selling album out. You know, what did we really know about Aha that wasn't sort of dragged out of them reluctantly? Mm. In interviews, they're quite serious. They're kind of amused at UK pop daftness, yes. but they're not really participating in it. They're more likely to discuss Kierkegaard than bitch about Pete Murphy yeah. or something. So there's that kind of little bit of, of Nordic distance mm. as well. I mean, they're um, all good-looking yeah. lads, but th- then again, Ooh. I've been to Norway, and trust me, you could go anywhere in that country and swing a big fucking long chain about and ensnare at three <laughs> other blokes who are just as good-looking, because right. Norwegians, man, they're <laughs> extremely... Extremely dolly-looking race of people. Mm. You know, when I went there, the minute I stepped off the plane, I thought, A, fucking hell, is proper code. B, I've never seen a sky that pale blue before. And C, 
immediately feeling like fucking Gollum. <laughs> you just looked around and thought, oh, please don't look at me, I'm English. Oh. I was there about 23 years ago to give a speech at Bylarm, their music business conference, mm-hmm. about how the porn business was making loads of money off the internet while the music business was losing it. Mm-hmm. And when I got there, I was told that it had been an ongoing local news story expressing outrage that a respected industry event was about to be sullied <laughs> by a smut peddler from London. <laughs> and I was told, and I never saw this, and I, I fucking wish I could see this, I was told that there was even an editorial cartoon about it consisting of someone who was supposed to be me in a big white fur coat and a gold <laughs> chain drooling over the fair maidens of Tromso. So you can imagine their disappointment when I fucking turned up in me suit looking like a gay football hooligan. <laughs> But oh, yeah, man. you just looked around and went, fucking hell, everyone's attractive. Even the horrible cunts that you see in any pub, mm. they were attractive. I was having a piss, and the bloke next to me said, hey, English, I fuck your bitch. <laughs> and I just stood there, had a bit of a shake, and just thought to myself, well, I haven't got a girlfriend at the minute, mate, but if I did, yeah, she'd definitely think about it, because you're, you're a decent-looking bloke. What's up with you? Go and talk to some women instead of me. But anyway, this single. I really like this track. Yeah, I really do. Yeah. It really works as the second track off the album as well, because it's straight after Take On Me, and it suggests the album's going to be different from that. Although I should say, mm. you know, we're saying, oh, Aha, majorly underrated. There has been something of a resurgence in recent years in terms of, like, you know, serious bands saying that they were massively influential on them. So, you know, yeah. Coldplay mm. did an interview where they went on about um, Aha and Keen and it, Liam Gallagher and Adam Clayton said in an interview right. um, from U2 he, he, he described Aha as a rather misunderstood band they were looked upon as a group for teenage girls but in reality they were a very creative band you know as if teenage girls mm. can't be into anything creative I don't want Coldplay or Keen to be their legacy <laughs> but they're, they are majorly underrated, actually, Aha. Uh-huh. And, and, and yeah. I, I like this track. I mean, it, perhaps it is my brain being racist, but um, there's a sort of impossibility of throwing off the dim traces of ABBA in what they do. I, I hear a slight similarity mm. to Lay All Your Love On Me in the verses, in, in the groove of it. Mm. They were, like you say, they're, they're meant to be the next Duran, but they, what was beautiful about them, um, beyond the cheekbones, was that they always seemed reluctant with that. Um, they'd made mm. themselves stars and then they kind of spent the rest of their time retreating away from that spotlight. Yeah. I think that happens with a lot of people. Because yeah. you can't possibly know what it's like until you're there. You know, yeah. It's like anyone else. They wanted to do the thing and they did the thing and then some stuff came with it that they probably had to just endure. Mm. You know? Yeah, I don't want to do this interview on fucking Saturday Superstore. Can't you just draw a cartoon of me <laughs> talking to Mike Reed, please? <laughs> they do resist being anyone's like favourite band just because there's a certain... And again, I don't want to um, draw the kind of broad cultural assumptions either, but people grow up in a culture and they reflect it, you know, and it comes out there's a certain aloofness, you know, there's this great magnetism that you are drawn to. And then there's an aloofness that keeps you from fully, madly loving them. You know, mm. like I, I, I am very, very fond of Aha, and not just because, as previously stated, Morton Harkett is a singularly handsome man. Uh, <laughs> the thing is that with with yeah, they're all good looking, but it's like he's just preposterously like he just and he he kind of knows it as well. Yeah, and he stayed good looking f- for ages as well, like yeah, forever, yeah, yeah. basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that's but that he has this little smirk that is very is a very knowing smirk that he sort of wears all the time. He just has resting smirk face, really, mm. Um, mm. which is great, which is a great thing for a pop star to have where it's just like 
that confidence that puts you at ease and goes, yes, I'm looking at a pop star now and uh, everything is right with the world. That person should be on that stage, you know. Mm. Um, mm. But yeah, um, also, I don't think people are really responsible for um, whoever is influenced by them, you know. Yeah, it's like no, that's, no, true, true. that's That's something true. that happens, you know. But yeah, sometimes you, you do get a bit um, Johnny Marr about it and just go, who said, why do you, you David Cameron, you, you don't like the Smiths. Yeah, I, f- I forbid you, I forbid you to like it. And also, they look very 1986, but they don't look like a bunch of cunts, do they? No. No. I mean, this is the era of the ripped jean. Mm. One of the few fashions of the era that have been picked up upon by our worthless and disappointing youth. <laughs> but, um, Morton's look like he's put them through a fucking wood chipper, man. They are shredded. I reckon they were expensive as well. Like, I've seen... Mm. There's a video, um, I can't remember which one it is now, but he's wearing those exact same ones with the exact same rips in a video. So they're mm. obviously faves of his, and maybe this was like a challenge within the group, like, see how long you can get away with wearing these jeans before they actually oh, fall no, apart. They, they, They've been pre-ribbed. Yeah, because no. there's no there's no rippage around the cross. Do people do people do that? Like that? Do people actually do that? I thought that all the ripped jeans were just like it was because they were poor and they had to just wear the same jeans all the time. No, Seriously, no, people did it. People this has blown yeah. my mind. <laughs> like people actually, who would do that? Who would wear ri- deliberately ripped jeans? I mean, that's I would send them back. <laughs> I would say I've I've received these jeans in the post. Well, no, it's it's nineteen eighty six. There's there's no such thing as receiving jeans in the post. I suppose. Well, I would go. I I I didn't realise until I got them home. These have got tears in mm. them. It was an era of jeans adaptation, wasn't it, really? Yes. <laughs> Sitting in the bath with them and all that. Yeah. Sorry, I fear that I'm not taken seriously when I say things on this podcast. <laughs> and it's like, do you think I'm some sort of child of, of the forest who has been a foundling who didn't know about ripped jeans? But it is, it's a cla- This is. I think he, he wears this quite a lot and it really suits him. Mm. It is a classic look, isn't it? White shirt, black belt, ripped jeans, black boots, bracelets, big hair, necklace, cheekbone, Sweet Morton <laughs> What's the most ripped jeans you've ever worn? <laughs> you see, I never did. You know, now, when you get ripped jeans, it's like there's rips up the thigh bit. Yeah. For me, it was always about the knees. Just the, the knees. knees. Yes. Yeah, yeah. To the point where, yeah, it was like a Chelsea grin all the way round, and, and your knee was sticking out. Yeah. It was always a knee thing, not those upper rips, which seem to be all the vogue mm. these days. I don't know if they still are, but I got some from a few years ago that are black with, like... A, a scattering of, of subtle sort of frayed bits on the thighs. Slits. Yeah, just like little, you know, so you can't mm. really see, you, you know, it's, it's they're not sort of, but yeah, I've, I've seen some that uh, really, really push the boundaries mm. of actual garment. I had a mate at university whose jeans were severely fucking ripped to the point where there was more holes than denim, <laughs> but also around the crotch, and he teamed up with boxer shorts <laughs> with a hole in them. So we'd be sitting on the tube, mm. I'd to lean over and go, mate, mm. your fucking bollocks are oh, hanging no, out. That's the Swiss cheese thing, isn't it? It's like when the holes align, mm. then it's all, it's all over. Yeah. Also, sorry, when you rip your jeans, right, you know you've got like, these like, big strands hanging down, what do you do with that? Mm. Do you clip them or do you just leave, just leave them? them? Yeah, because mine always got too bloody long to the point where right. the threads were sort of dangling down to my fucking shoes. So I was like, just look. Roger Daltrey's fringe <laughs> That's jacket. It. That's it. I could never quite get that look right. Mm. 
but, but it's a remarkable year for them, really. They have a number one single. They have a ton of hits. Yeah. I mean, they've got, they've got a fair few records getting in the charts this year. It is their, it's their big year, isn't it, for a half? Yes, they've just announced their first tour of the UK at the end of the year, which is immediately sold out. They played two dates at the, um, at the Royal Concert Hall in Nottingham, which was a huge fucking deal. Mm. Morton's also about to become the first teeny lust object to have socks thrown at him at gigs <laughs> instead of knickers. <laughs> Apparently during a tour of Japan, he was interviewed and said that the downside of being a pop star was that he never had the time to wash his own socks oh. and had to lob them out after wearing them, which resulted in thousands of Japanese fans sending their local label socks, rather in the manner of the ATV studios, being deluged by knitted woolly hats when Benny couldn't find his in an episode <laughs> As it was Japan, you can imagine there were really nice socks in really mm. ornate packaging. Mm. That's brilliant. I mean, for me, he's mm. like Nick Kershaw, man. If I met him, I would not be able to speak. Because he's just too pretty, isn't he, Morton? He, he still is. I didn't know this. You equate Morton Alkett with Nick Kershaw on that. They similarly would leave me speechless. Right. In a, in a way that sort of more important figures to me musically wouldn't. Right. Because I'd immediately just blush and giggle. And <laughs> <laughs> I never knew you felt this way about oh, Nick massively. Yeah, man. I would. I would agree. Massively, Matt, and he still looks amazing, Nick Kershaw, as well. Mm. Um, it's just something about him. Yeah, he's he's adorable. Wouldn't it be good, eh, Neil? <laughs> <laughs> I've got two strong arms, and they absolutely belong on top of the pops. That they're, they're, they're so yes. good on this show. Yeah. You know, in contrast to the kind of slightly embarrassing things they're forced to do elsewhere. Um, at the end of this appearance, uh, I think Gary Davis mentions the tour. Yes. Um, that's coming up later. And, you know, when that tour um, actually starts later on in the year, the kind of first TV appearance of Aha in that period is on Blue Peter. Um, Ooh. Yeah. And he's on Blue Peter. That For some reason, you know, it's actually Blue Peter is the show on which the Cry Wolf video makes its debut. Really? And, yeah. And, and, and you've got Janet Ellis there going, and here's Morton just back in the country making friends with Bonnie. And, and there's, oh. you know, Morton being slobbered over by Bonnie and the big Blue Peter Labrador while Janet asking questions about the tour. And the other presenter, Mark Curry, he tries to give Morton a Blue Peter badge. Right. Um, and he says, just in case Crywolf doesn't get to number one, which I'm sure it will, you'll have to share it with the whole band. It's a weird first appearance back, but they're, they're much more comfortable in this milieu on top of the pops. I've been on the piss with Janet Ellis. She's fucking mint. <laughs> About 20 years ago, I was doing an article for the Daily Mirror where I was essentially being Jimmy Savile and getting in touch with people who wrote uh, TV shows like right. Jim Will Fix It or Blue Peter to, to mm-hmm. do things, and they never got a response. So I'd make their dreams come true. And one woman wrote to Blue Peter, never got a response. So me and Janet Ellis went round her house, and we made a dog cake. <laughs> <laughs> it was really good. I was really impressed. And we went to the pub afterwards, and yeah, we had a bit of a session. Janet Ellis, by that time, had developed the filthiest laugh I've ever heard <laughs> on a woman. It was just like, oh, you're fucking mint. <laughs> that was the article where we went around Tony Hart's house as well. So oh yeah. God. You went around Tony wow. Hart's house? Glory days. How was he? He was mint. The only thing about him was he didn't have a cravat on. He had his shirt open, but no cravat. So it was like he was standing there with his bollocks out. <laughs> but a lovely bloke. Yeah. Oh. I imagine. So I imagine Janet was. You could tell. 
With some kids presenters, you could tell that they're a bit naughty off screen. So the following week, Train of Thought dropped five places to number 13. The follow-up, Hunting High and Low, got to number five in June. And they finished off the year with the singles I've Been Losing You and Cry Wolf, getting to number eight and number five for two weeks in October and January of 1987, respectively. And their second LP, Scoundrel Days, got to number two for a fortnight in October. And they spent the rest of the 80s and early 90s as a regular chart concern until they split up for the first time in 1994. Pop crazy youngsters, we're going to step back and catch his breaths for a little while and come back hard tomorrow for part three of Chart Music 7 Ted. Don't forget, if you want the full episode without any advert ramble, you've got to get yourself over to patreon.com slash chart music and stuff this G-string full of lovely money. On behalf of Sarah B and Neil Kukana, this is Al Needham telling you to just stay pop crazed chart music planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.